0: Uh, um, but I also believe that you know, uh, what is it? To whom much is given, much is asked. Uh, and you know, you never—I I said earlier—you never do anything by yourself, right? Uh, and I think that's part of the thing that that motivates me is is you, there are people I've worked with who uh, uh, continue to work. You know, in situations that are much more difficult than what I work in, right? And continue to keep their head down, their shoulders, the wheel, right? Um, and so, uh, um, you, you know, I, I don't have it here in this office, but, you know, it, it, uh, uh, I need to put it up. I have a picture of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather uh, coming out of the mill. Right there, where their were clothes, right and there covered with, the uh, you know, dust from the steel mill, right, so they were covered with stuff, and dust, uh, so whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, oh god, I'm so stressed, I'm working so hard, I'd look at that picture and say, you know, that's hard work, you get to work in the shade, right, <laughs> you know, so, you know, dry your tears and get
1: back to work, that's right. Everyone, welcome to another fantastic episode of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, aka the Hip Hop Forester, and I'm sitting here also with my co-host, Bennett Alupo. As we have been uh, working to get uh, this this scholar uh, on the podcast, we've been we've been working because the, he is one that we've been wanting to talk to for a while. Everyone, I'm, I'm talking to none other than the individual that I met when he first came to to Yale uh, when I was working here. And uh, really graced us uh, not just with the scholarship and presence, but also ideas, and it's manifested into other centers and things that are growing. And so we're here with none other than Professor, and that is Professor Gerald Torres. Dr. Torres, thank you for your time, and thank you for allowing us to talk with. You.
0: Well, thank you, Thomas. really good to see you again. Uh, I, I miss your presence around the around the school. So uh, thanks. It'd be it'd be good to have you around, um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to engage you in conversation. Um, you know, we can talk about any number of things, right? Topics that are specific to Yale, but topics that are specific to environmental justice, mm-hmm. or the environmental mm-hmm. movement uh, globally. Which we can talk about that because there have been, you know, many, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. many uh, changes, many advancements. Um, and so, I'm I'm open to talk about anything. This is great. You know, I always have, you know I always have good conversations, so I'm ready. Okay,
1: all right. Well, that actually, you already set the tone. You mentioned three things. Now, I'm coming up visiting from North Carolina, which is the state that's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement, the movement. But environmental injustices have been happening before the movement. And so I'd like to uh, so I want to ask you like one, if it's I, I don't think it's cliche. I hope it's not. Could you tell me how you got interested first in the environmental justice movement and recognizing that you have a mall background? Everyone, you need to know that. I'd like to know how that also like feeds into. Your
0: interests in well,
1: it actually goes way back before law. It goes way back before
0: college, uh, uh, and I always had two interests, you know, kind of extracurricular interests. So I was, I've always been an environmentalist. You know, I was a member of the Sierra Club when it used to be a real club. Right, when you used to have to be nominated to be a member. Uh, uh, so that means that tells you how old I am. One face, right. <laughs> right? Second. Uh, um, I was always, you know, I grew up in the middle of the uh, emerging civil rights movement, so I was involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement in Southern California, and the environment, uh, and and that's kind of what I did, and it, it helped kind of define both my um, my my political outlook broadly, but also ultimately came to define my scholarly. Uh, uh, and my career uh, uh, choices. So that, uh, you know, when I went to law school, uh, I was I wanted to, to do civil rights work, which I did do when I graduated law school, uh, but I always remained interested in environmental law. Now, what people don't remember, because everybody you know, just takes their baseline from a different spot, environmental law is a relatively new thing as a subject. Right, so the, the the I don't remember when the first ag, uh, environmental law course was offered, but my bet it was, is that it was mid seventies. So it's uh, you know, which I know current students think that's say, ancient history, but you know, I call that a living memory. yes yeah. <laughs> uh, So so um, uh, I worked for the Children's Defense Fund in Washington D.C., uh, and then uh, when I wanted to change gears and and Moved to the environment, I went and studied with Joe Sachs uh, at the University of Michigan. And Joe, in many ways, thought of as the uh, kind of the father of environmental law, Uh, one of the earliest environmental uh, law scholars. Uh, And so I basically sat at his knee for two years and learned everything I could, right? Uh, uh, And then uh, I was going to go back into private practice. when I graduated from from Michi- Michigan and uh, and Joe said no no you're not here you need to go to the academy so he kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck push me to the academy So that's that's, where I, that's why I end up here um, so I did that there's one other thing that one other path that I want to uh, 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 talk about because it's 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 like a tributary in 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 uh, in environmental justice so that's uh, food agriculture and food policy so. I think this is true. I don't know. What you'll have to, you know, do, do research and, and catch me out on this if I'm wrong. Okay. But I, I think I offered the first agricultural law class in a modern American hostel back in the, uh, would have been the mid eighties when I was at Minnesota. And part of it was, was, uh, uh, you know, when I was teaching at Minnesota, probably half my students there came from farm backgrounds right and then I'd start to look around and and so these, maybe we ought to you know this is a huge part of the economy right and in terms of the environment it's regulated completely differently right and it and you know, people don't think of agriculture and agricultural law as basically a resource courses you know water, soil, you know uh, 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 you know crops or, or plants or plants. But then was, he, then you trees exact silviculture is part of it, right? Managing uh, uh, wildlife, right, to both in, enhance wildlife but also you know protect uh, farms from you know depredation by wildlife. So it all comes together. So I, I I started doing that and then moved into the environmental regulation of agriculture. And I, I as a, a friend of mine at uh, at uh, Drake Law School said, you know, I was teaching. Environmental regular of agriculture before it was cool, right? So on so that. <laughs> 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 and so I haven't been able to do that here to teach that class here, but I've been able to integrate agricultural issues at food issues. Now everybody talks about it as food systems, right? Into my environmental justice work. But so that's kind of like like deep background. My uh, active background in environmental justice came, uh, dates God, back to 1978, so long time ago, when the Sierra Club, the um, uh, Urban League, and the a group that doesn't exist anymore, except maybe in its carnation as the Blue-Green you know, Alliance, but it was called uh, Environmentalists for Full Employment, and it was a union-based environmental group. Okay. Right, And so they met in Detroit, and they discussed a couple of things. One is how do you get issues that affect people of color into the mainstream environmental, uh, uh, you know, organizations? Sierra Club obviously being one of them. Uh, and then the 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 thing that's I think remarkable about environmental justice and and the the aspect of it that I I try to maintain even as I build out the center is that it's a it's a bottom up. It's a bottom-up, okay, bottom movement, right? It didn't start with eggheads thinking, "Oh, there's a problem. How do we solve it?" It was people who were experiencing the environmental injustice, saying, "You know, something's happening. We know something's wrong. We're going to figure out what it is, and then we're going to take action." Right. So when you think about North Carolina, right, and it being the birthplace, that's essentially what happened: is the grassroots people uh, creating things that that you know we now call uh, um, uh, like public epidemiology, or, you know, uh, you know uh, what's the science, uh, uh, you know, citizen science, mm-hmm. right? And it's just like citizen based epidemiology, right? So there, there, uh, um, uh, there were people in Chicago, there were people in North Carolina, there were people in Louisiana, right, who were, you know, noticing things like disease cl- uh, clusters. Right, and then trying to tr- trace back those disease clusters to the environmental contaminants, which is which is why you know the the uh, the movement like arose from people a noticing there's a problem, and then trying to figure out what was causing it, and then moving back up the chain and turn it into kind of policy interventions, but also you know political interventions. Yes. So uh, when I worked in the Clinton administration the uh, at that point the uh, uh, um, the I forgets proper name but it was the it was the national Envi- uh, people of color environmental group okay that that brought the issue of environmental justice to the Clinton administration and said you know we we want this to be part of the agenda and so what the president did was to uh, uh, Asked the Justice Department, and so it fell on to me, to draft an executive order for environmental justice. So that's how the, uh, the executive order 12898 got written. And I, I worked with, you know, my staff was incredibly good. We worked across agencies, um, and we tried to do a couple of things. Sure. One, we tried to craft a definition of what an environmental justice community is, and then we tried to create a process through which agencies would assess their own programs against the effects on these environmental justice communities. Yeah. Uh, and so it was—it was basically we asked the agencies to prepare strategic plans to address environmental justice. Uh, and you know, it was—I—I—I—I'm happy with it, and it's important. It was an important step, but it was obviously just a first step. Okay, right, all right, and so the its current uh, iteration um, under the the uh, Biden administration kind of refines some of those uh, the uh, categories, right, and expands it and creates uh, funding for environmental justice, is mm-hmm. a key thing. So that's the way I got into it um, at, as a policy matter, and then. I, when I left the government and started writing, and then I was writing about environmental justice. So, um, you know, kind of the early, uh, the early issues. Um, and one of the things that's happened is that, you know, initially people were focused on the maldistribution of uh, burdens. So environmental burden. We have an industrial society. Industrial economy, it produces pollution. Uh, Pollution has health uh, impacts, negative health impacts. They're not evenly distributed. So the first thing that the EJ community was focused on was the distribution of environmental burdens, right? But then they said, wait a minute, you know, we don't want Our our goal isn't to have everybody suffer the same. (laughs) Perfect. our our goal is to is to reduce the pollution load generally even as we address the distribution of environmental burdens okay so so it's it's a it's a positive program not just a negative program it's not just stop this it's no we need to do this okay that that was critical yeah uh the 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 uh other thing was it moved from just focusing on distribution to questions of uh, how decisions get made you know, at all levels of government, from local government up to the federal government. And so questions of participatory justice became integrated into environmental justice okay and for a long time distributional concerns and participation concerns were the, the main things and that's a long answer to the question <laughs> I apologize. It was half address answer, but if, if that's how I got to doing the
1: work that I do. Okay, so I have a, it's, it's, you sparked so many other questions now. So with me being a forester, one of the things that I noticed and I went to school in the 90s is that when we would talk about civil culture or talk about um, easements and rights, we we never really, uh, and I hope my professors don't get mad when they hear this, we didn't go into environmental law. Like I had to step outside of the curriculum to go into environmental law. So with that, here's my next question, which was not written down, just, it sparked something, You mentioned environmental justice, environmental movement, and civil rights. Now, I come from a family that was leaders in the civil rights movement. My question is, you either found or created a way to me to, like, sit at the center of these three. So, I wanted to know, like, have you had any uh, challenges with explaining the things that you're doing, let's say, like, from one audience to the other? Like, uh, because, like, coming up in civil rights, if I talked to any of my family members, they wouldn't that they'll say oh yeah i've heard about environmental justice but they wouldn't be as informed obviously and then sometimes i've spoken with people in environmental justice and sometimes there's a little lack of the civil rights and even if you go into conservation it seems like there's like a lot of gray areas so that's what I'd just like to know like have you had to not only push the culture up against agencies and help government bring them along but even in the movements themselves you know like have you had to do with any of that um the, the, the
0: answer is yes okay uh but it's complicated right because okay. because um the one of the thing but we were writing the executive order one of the things i did uh was i looked around the country for uh, local environmental justice groups okay and i invited them into the justice department and i said just sit and talk to you tell me what you do right uh and this is over a couple of weeks i've met for several hours a day with each of these groups uh and I took notes and my staff took notes um and a couple of things emerged Something that is exactly what you said which is that uh um uh-huh. people understood it as a uh uh the very harms that they were suffering as a as a kind of racial justice issue some... some people understood it as a class-based issue and this is about poor people Right, yes. Uh, but remember in the Civil Rights Movement, well, you had, you know, it was Dr. King himself, right? Who joined those two things together, right, Right. the Civil People Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. So you combine those, and then you bring in kind of the democratic, small-d democratic question Okay. Of, okay, how have these communities been excluded from decision-making, and how has that exclusion from decision-making resulted in the harms that we're seeing Right? And when you start to talk about it that way uh um the question of the relationship between environmental protection and civil rights protection become clear the other thing that was really important and i stress this when i teach the class is that um if you listen to the communities right the definition of environmental justice is far broader than just the pollution statutes right so so you know when you talk to these communities transportation issues environmental justice issues right access to access to mass transit right uh uh city planning right access to say and i'm going to be one way that stuck in my mind because it was it was you know stressed me that uh, a woman said look my kids don't have a safe way to get to school if they walk Right, so the design of the infrastructure has left my kids more at risk to hazards, of, you know, traffic, you know, pollution loads, you know, from the auto exhaust, right? Then, then if you planned, you know, you have a school, you have housing. How are the kids going to get there? The ones who walk, not the ones who take the bus, but the ones who walk, right? So, so they said you got to, you know, you have got to integrate that into your thinking about environmental justice right right water obviously critical right but let's go to just to silver culture right because you know the that implicates in my mind and it did implicated in the minds of some of the people I talked to right the uh, uh control over decisions and have an impact apart from just the forest Right. The forest is is a way in which the water resources are managed well too and have an impact on that, right? Right. So so uh, like the quality of the stream quality, which is a pollution question, a non-point source pollution question, right? But it's also a question about downstream uses and the quality of the water, right? So, right. so these kinds of issues, right, you know, became right, environmental justice issues. But if you talk just to an environmentalist, mm-hmm. they'd look at you cross-eyed. They wouldn't. They, yeah, they wouldn't see this. Like, so I'd say things like, "Well, look, the number." What they pointed out to me, if I talk to you, that that the there's a relation between the number of liquor stores that are permitted in this neighborhood and 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 gun gun injuries. Mm. Oh. Okay. All right. Wow. Hey, so now, is that an environmental issue? Well, certainly, Atlanta, certainly, it's a it's a, it's an urban planning issue as a public health issue, right? And yes. public health is part of the environment, right? And the environmental justice movement said you got to think about public health when you think about the environment, and that's what the, and that's also a civil rights question, right? Because these communities are more heavily targeted for these kinds of businesses, okay. right? Other thing. This, I'm talking about LA here. This is what I have in my mind is is council. Mm-hmm. So the I like, when you talk to me, okay, the okay. the 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 distance between gun gun injuries and hospitals. So you have like the you can map out where gunshot injuries happen mm-hmm. and where hospitals are, mm-hmm. right? And what you discover is that they're not in the same part of the city. Oh, right. So that's a public health issue. And then if you then the, the capacity to access those hospitals, mm-hmm. which is a, a transit issue, For transportation, so, you know. And so those are both civil rights issues and environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Strict environmentalists would say, "Okay, Taurus, you're trying to boil the ocean here. There's you know there's too many problems." I said, "No, no. What I want to do is to listen to what the people tell me. The issues are that are facing them. Which of them are." Uh, which I think you analyze using the tools of an, of environmental thinking, including urban planning, right? Things like that. How can you use bring these tools to think about these problems? We need to reach out and get public health people help me understand this. We need to talk to city planners and have them help me think about this. We need to talk to foresters, help help us think about that. Because that then raises another issue, right? Which is access to green space, right? Which, in whole, which, as as climate now has been overlaid on top of this, right? You discover that uh, 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 heat islands are more commonly located in poor and uh, neighborhoods uh, that are occupied by people of color, right? Right. So they, these people suffer from uh, additional heat stress. The, some of the literature on green space and access to green space is tied to levels of stress. So if you're in a community that doesn't have access to green space, parks, or even boulevards with trees or, or trees along the street, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in those kind of neighborhoods, the research has indicated the stress level in those communities are higher. But there's also then two environmental issues that are, that are triggered by that. One is trees, bushes... Greenery actually um, reduce the amount of particulate matter, probably because it captures it, right? Yes. So that if the if you're in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of uh, of uh, green cover or a canopy of some sort, right, you're then more subject to the harms of air pollution, especially particulate pollution, which is tied to asthma, which is tied to dust. You know, yeah. Right. Yes. Sir. So so there's that. Okay. But then, but then the heat island effect is you know is is important because that is then tied to energy usage. That's right. Right. You gotta cool down. Right, right. So so that's tied to the decisions we make about energy production, distributed, you know, distributing solar, for example. How are we gonna, you know, pick it. So it gets connected that way. And, you know, I wouldn't have started thinking about these things if I hadn't just talked to the people at the at street, at the grassroots and listened to them, right? And it's not like they come in and say, this is an environmental justice problem, right? Mm-hmm. And they come in and tell you what's, what the problem is, and then I think about, okay, what tools do I have as a civil rights lawyer, as a lawyer generally, right, as an environmentalist to, to think about these issues? And what's, What tools do I need to help me think about this? And right. that's, right. that's when I realized, you know, nobody does anything by themselves, right. right? So you've got to build a network of people who are committed to addressing these issues and have skills that they can bring to it.
2: Yes. Right. You oh, and, and, Yeah. You must address, And if compounds, a lot of these communities don't have the agency or they don't have the power to go to the, to control where the generator is going to be or where, where the pollution sources uh, are getting located in North Minneapolis, we have the hurricane incinerator. And that's right by North Minneapolis. Um, so it's given out all these, all these toxins as compounding and I just gone right back to the same, to the same source. Yeah. It's less so. trees. There's a lot of, a lot of dark spaces where it just creates a harder place to live mm-hmm. a lot more stress. A well, lot more stress. It's a harder place to live. That's
0: a good way to put it. It's a harder place to live. And so it increases stress. Stress is a health, you know, issue. It is. It I, is. I mean, and, 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 you know, I was reading some demographic uh statistics yesterday on life expectancy okay if you don't think stress is a public health issue look at the impact of stress on longevity on specific communities yes uh right and you can look at it in different parts of the country so in the in in below the basin dixon line as african-american men lose I am I've forgotten the exact number, I'm gonna say six years of life
2: expectancy. And growing up, I was like, Oh, it's solved, like it's this and that, like you you hear like the health explanations and they for a long time they're ignored stress. they're like, you have them a diet. Yeah, diet. And then it's more recently where they're talking about stress and you think about uh injustices to the black community, to these epicines, right? And that's the effect of this. Like that's the effect. Like if you in like
1: in, in the capital, I live in around in North Carolina. Yeah. Cary, North Carolina, which is just the next town to the west, yeah. is 10 degrees cooler. And in the, the, the index, the, in the 10 degrees cooler than southeast Raleigh, okay, where, where where I live. In Alabama, where I'm from, seriously, this gonna, I'm not making this up, everyone. I live in, my parents live in Fairfield, okay? Birmingham is, you know, so Fairfield is west side of Birmingham. The east side, which is on the other side of downtown, 30 degrees cooler. Than where my parents live. Also, that's where the food stores are, yeah. are on that side. So, what I appreciate, what you're continuing to educate me, looking at that, even back and being educated again, and Professor Torres, is you, you're making it, you're making the difficult topic easy to me. You know, like to understand time to food, time to ag, time to forestry, time to trees, but time to the the, the, the challenge of lifestyles that people live, and also in the black belt in, in Alabama, people walking in soup. That's a utility problem right there, right and they wanted to blame the residents of that first. That's Captain Flowers book, I believe. But really, it was the way that everything was built, the trailers, the houses, all of that. It was almost like it was intentional, which is why I want to ask you before going to talking about the center, you know, and, and please, you know, you can always say no. Talk, ask that. But do you I, I wonder sometimes was some of this intentional or was this? You know, ignorance not trying to solve anyone, just unawareness. You know, in the way cities were designed and the way things were planned, just you know, i just like to you know whether you know if you're doing my too. Well let, let me say this, they more the the, uh,
0: you, the minute you say planning, it's yes. says intention. Now now, right? Because that's what planning's about. It's 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 looking at the future and intentionally designing something. Now, if you're gonna say, was this uh um uh people deliberately targeting like the black community or targeting the brown community or targeting the red community that's a different question right and it's, but but what you can say and let me give you an example from Texas from Austin Texas right okay, okay. right the uh, uh, when they decided to put in the interstate right? they put the interstate that divided West Austin from East Austin guess who lived where Right, so uh, White, Austin, White Austin is West Austin, you know. Not White Austin is East Austin, right? Uh, and, and did they did they uh, intentionally uh, do this to contribute to segregation? Well, you know that's hard to prove. What you can say is that if they thought about it, right, they would have been able to foresee the consequences. So what have been is they it, 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 they're at minimum guilty of not thinking about it. Uh, you yeah, know, I'm trying to. I'm going to assume good faith, right? I'm going to assume good faith, right? right. But, 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 take minute You're from Minneapolis, right? here. Yeah. If you r- drive on the uh, the interstate through Minneapolis, it's crazy because you go this way, then goes this way, then go this way, right? And if you ask yourself, why does it do that, right? It did. It did it because there was community involvement in the planning of the of the highway. Oh. Right. So it, it went around some neighborhoods and you know, it, it, it's not quite the same big dividing line like I thirty five through through Austin.
2: But it cut through black communities oh. and it went around the wealthy So there's uh, there's a lot of history behind that and it cut through a lot of parks that were if type of the community uh I did work last summer with Judge Lane and it it destroyed that it took the heart out of that community and it's a rebuilding process and ever since. Everything's just been different, right. and you talked residents uh, here, the stories that they had growing up, how they just went out on the stream and just like, enjoy, be at the parks, enjoy, be at all these spots. Yeah. so
0: it's now you know, now you know, you, you their l- land was probably cheaper there, right? Oh, so, so, so then you say, oh, well, the comp, the the is reduced. And we put it here. Well, then you have to ask, well, why was land cheaper there? Right. right and that goes back then that's part of the old planning right and seeing can of it that now the funny thing right is now that austin he austin's in this this boom town time, time right now right and it's a, um and so they're now talking about submerging putting i-35 as it goes through austin below grade and then bringing connecting with the uh, with park bridges uh east to west austin right. Yeah! Wow! Who knows it'll happen because it'll be horribly expensive. But okay. the idea is, is we they can reconnect Austin. It okay. yeah. my son, who's a filmmaker, right, did, did made a film in which uh, uh, a satiric look at some of the events in Austin, right? And it, it, he's one of the scenes is that they're these this, this people are in a car. They're they're moving to Austin, looking around. They're driving on East Austin, right? Okay, and the signs are in Spanish and. Either it uh, it said, "We we found a part of Austin, you know, and nobody lives here," <laughs> <laughs> which captures right the idea of the invisibility, right? You know, no, West Austin doesn't look there yet, <laughs> right? Yes, uh-huh. But but the there's a, there's also a, a, a you know power plant in East Austin that that isn't going to get closed down. Not, maybe now will get closed down, right? Is and so so you know. When when you say is it intentional, right? The, the, my answer is that's a complex question, right? Okay. Now it, because it's 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 built on layers of decision making that kind of cement in, right? Disparities. Many of those disparities were based on race, mm-hmm. and were based on class, right? And as to you you know. As you build layer upon layer, you have that bottom, you know, the bottom justifications, which then get even if you're completely innocent, right, get reflected in the current decisions. That's why that's why I suggested to some, my students that that, regardless of what expertise you bring, you've got to root that expertise in justice. Okay, and if you root that expert, because if you try to add justice on as an afterthought, right, then it's just like you know, icing on the cake. It's not like part of the cake, right? It's got to be cooked in. Yes, right. Uh, but that means you got to, you know, have an, an idea of what justice means, right? So that's that's it's, it's not like you know, you trip over justice, but right? you got <laughs> you got to think about it, and you have to have justifications because these are normative conclusions you're going to come to that then have to inform. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the urban planning process, the infrastructure process, the, you know, the energy policy, okay. You know, things like that. So, I mean, it, you know, one other example, okay. Oh, okay, Distributed solar. It's a great idea, right? There's, you know, we can, you know, we don't have to have centralized power plants. If you can, you know, if people can generate the, the, the electricity they need, right? But then the rule on net, on net metering, right? The rule on on how much the utilities have to pay to buy the excess energy you produce. Do they pay wholesale rate or retail rate, right? If you're the if you're the if you're if, if, if you're the homeowner, you want them to pay retail rate, like because then you become a producer selling it to them, right? It, okay, uh, as opposed to stay, you know, a wholesale rate. Which is, you know, the a lower figure, and it reduces the attractiveness of solar because you don't get, you know, you don't get that benefit. On the other hand, it it reduces the extent to which the maintenance of the infrastructure isn't passed on to uh, ratepayers who don't have solar. So, oh, so poor people basically have not been on the cutting edge of adding solar to their homes. Okay. Right. So they're paying in their uh, utility bills part of the, as every utility bills like this, right? Part of the the, the, the fee, the long-term fee for, for building and ma- maintaining the grid that distributes the energy, right? One of the worries in California, right, is that you'll have people defecting from the, the grid, because they, you know, they're not getting the because of the the net metering question, right, right. If they defect from the grid, on one hand, you could say, well, they're still doing a good thing; they're they're not using juice, right, right. But it also means that the cost of maintaining that infrastructure is now going to be totally borne by those people who can't defect from the grid. Oh, gotcha.
2: Okay, sorry right. Okay. So then that burden is... Exactly, exactly. The black belt,
1: mm. the discipline, uh-huh, the pain we got, the hill we live in. Uh. The black belt, mm. the discipline, uh-huh, the pain we got, the hill we live in. Black belt, got third degree, burns on the skin, scratching, it's hurting me, got a rash, this emergency, don't have to wait jobs, mom is working three, no matter how much overtime, it's not enough, to pay for the damages, oh and breathing's tough, this raw sewage, that I'm walking through, if mom don't fix this problem, we gonna have to move, black belt, the discipline, yeah, the pain we got, the hell we live in. Uh, the black belt. The discipline. yeah The pain we got. The hell we live in. Black belt got hookworms. Store a problem. Said Durham, Lowndes County, and Mossville. New Orleans to Knoxville. Halifax to Georgia. The broker get poorer. Technology on the floor to build COVID. us this living and gorgeous exposed to us we silent we suffer we silent we suffer we silent we suffer the savior life music the black belt. what with that uh, dark, i like all of me. okay yeah we got like fighting for tangents yeah. well i'd like to ask something for clarity for some of our listeners right okay so diversity empathy and inclusion but the two words or three words that have been added to that is belonging access and justice. And i just like to ask you as a professional, a leader and originator of a lot, could you like maybe just like share what, like when you say, you know, to your students and you've also been the the originator of now classes that focus on the indigenous community too, here on campus and thank you for that. But like just in simple terms, uh, you know, what like what is like what is it to think about justice like i know the i justice has like those five ten say you know we don't we, we want to work to not create victims and redistribute the challenges and different things but just what would be just kind of if, if there is a lot of easy hook of we think about justice this is what it is
0: when i said that you've got to have a, a Question of justice—that you know, in mind, okay, you, you've got to answer that question. Everybody has to answer the question of what justice means, right? Uh, so the, you know, at the the, at the the most formal level, right, it's treating uh, like things alike, okay, right? That's that's what justice is, right? Is to te- treat. Cheat. The question of which things are alike is where the, you know, the the problem is, right? So, so what what you have to ask, uh, students, is if i do x am i going to contribute to the continued inequality which is an expression of injustice that i see in this sector or this sector or this sector if the answer is yes then you've got to go back and refine your proposals for fine the way you think about it that's right that's what happens when i say you have to think about justice at the beginning right not not at the end so uh the, my executive director, Michael Galopter, who I just hired for the Yale Center for Environmental Justice, he was one of the creators of the uh, Green Leadership Trust, and the Green Leadership Trust is, uh, as you may or may not know, it's it's a it's a it's an organization that is made up of uh, people of color who are on the boards of the mainstream environmental groups, so NRDC, yeah, Safe Community Modern, yeah, uh, uh would EDF EDF yeah. a clean clean water action yeah you know all, you go through Sierra Club etc cetera you start to put, name them right okay and the idea is uh, one so that we can learn from each other about what's going on but also how do we bring these issues into the mainstream environmental groups so that they can start to integrate them into the way they approach problems so. Um, when I think about you know I have in some ways avoided your questioning you know exactly <laughs> uh, okay. but be, because there isn't a simple answer right okay but but the one question you can ask yourself as you think about these problems is what injustices do I notice and does the way I'm thinking about the solution to the problem that I've identified exacerbate that injustice or or ameliorate that injustice okay doesn't have to solve it completely but it can't contribute to it hmm right okay said okay. and uh because it's gonna you know because we ta- already talked about all these interlinking systems right. that uh you know you can't eat what, what they, they mentioned this on the, the basketball games I was watching the They're like, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time right, <laughs> right. And, it, 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 and, and, and people, it applies to environmental problems, right? And people bring different expertise. So you're a forester. You're going to bring the expertise of, of forestry, whether you applied it in an urban setting, right, or the the uh, commercial, you know, uh, uh, setting, right? Yeah. I, I have people who are going to be, you know, uh, uh, work on air right. So they're going to bring their expertise on air. Some are going to bring their expertise on indoor air pollution, right. They're going to be able to bring that in. But I, what I want to do is to ask those questions about justice, even as they
1: plan their projects. Okay. So before, so now recognizing that you've been here you've been busy, <laughs> you know, and I, it was an honor to meet you and you know, I've worked here and now uh, you've been teaching multiple classes working two major major schools on campus and now of course now leading the environmental justice center here on campus uh what would you say is the primary focus right now of the environmental justice center you know is it about citizens rights is it about you know uh pollution? evolution is it about uh educating more people on the challenges that Communities of color, where we're talking black, brown, red in particular, are are dealing with, or is it primarily to educate, you know, people on the things that you can do, you being me or whoever. This is how we can rectify or try to reverse as much as we can these conditions that we're really fighting now. Well,
0: the focus has been to work with community groups. Okay. Okay. Uh, But one of my goals is to create a program here involving internships, you know, research, et cetera, so that the students can imagine a career in environmental justice. So when they leave YSE or the YLS, right, they can imagine the career in environmental justice. They, they don't think of it as something that, that they have to add on to what they, you know, what their real job is. I want that to be their real job. Right. So wherever they, so that that's one of the goals is to create career paths in environmental justice. We've um, we work with community groups so that the students and the the internships uh, and the fellowships that they have mean that they've got to be embedded in these groups. They've got to bring value to these groups, and they need to learn how to uh, talk to and understand the communities that are. That are at the heart or at the bottom of, of the environmental justice movement. This one, so we're starting uh, lo- uh, locally, uh, uh, regionally. Uh, we want to go nationally. One of the things that that uh, our EJ center does that that I don't think a lot of the EJ centers do do is we have a a, a real focus on working with indigenous uh, tribal communities, so that uh, we. Uh, have uh, some long-term agreements with a couple of tribes um, in which we're uh, helping them with their programs, and they tell us what they need. We try to get people to mash them up with it. We've had one internship on the ground uh, last summer. Um, But what we wanted is we want to create a space where we can think about issues facing uh, tribal communities, because they're different, right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the environmental justice context. Right? That, that's one. The other thing we want to do is we want to make uh, connections with tribal colleges, just like we're trying to do with the HBCUs. Okay. Right. Okay. So that would create uh, pathways for these tribes to educate their kids so they can go back and run all these programs. Got Cat- it. Probably, terrific. yeah, ultimately. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, you have a, a Yale credential is a real, it's a, it's an asset. To I mean, be frank, it's an asset. And so, the extent to which we can create that asset, that value in these communities, that'll be useful too. So, that's, that's what we're, what we're trying to do. We're also trying to add classes. So, um, you know, we have we teach environmental justice, and then I expanded to be environmental justice and climate justice because I want to bring those two together and I want people to think about them. Um, and to you know, apropos of the earlier example I gave, mm. right, is uh, uh, you know, decarbonizing the the economy is not necessarily about environmental justice. Right? It may be that it's necessary, but it's not necessarily about it environmentalologist. I want you to think about how it overlaps, right? Okay? Uh, uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing we're doing is, is I want to create more uh, courses uh, related to uh, indigenous groups studies. So we have uh, federal Indian law, then we have added now advanced federal Indian law. Um, we have a co-management clinic, uh, tribal co-management clinic. then we have uh, another Indian law. Clinic, so we have those four, and we're hoping to add one more um, that directly involves uh, kind of co-management of uh, timber resources or, or forestry resources. Okay. And and okay, I, I, this is we're, we're not even off the ground yet; it's just the planning stages. But we're already thinking that that you know we're going to focus on on domestic uh, in bringing indigenous knowledge to forest management. This is kind of the idea. Mm. right okay focusing focusing on domestic uh uh nation tribal nations but also we want to do north america right so that, that that we can integrate uh indigenous knowledge across north america and make it applicable you know to 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 mexico canada and the united states yes the way the turn it may take, I hope, eventually will be to think about systems, so that that we can talk across systems. So, uh, what do indigenous people of Southeast Asia do, right, in terms of silviculture? Mm. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it, one of the things I've discovered is that a lot of the way tribes think about about um, kind of forest resources. Maps onto the way you know foresters think about it. The foresters don't think foresters think they invented this stuff. "I was just about to think Doc. I was going to say that, but right? And in fact, it grows out of the, the the way forests were managed, right? Uh, and you know, if if it, it, you know, since Yale was the the forestry school, right, the was the first one, right, if we can show leadership in that area, I think it'll be an important thing." Okay,
1: I'm glad you said that because I was going to. I was going to say that like uh, I I I know you're always intentional and that you know and I was going to say like a lot of folks in forestry sometimes think to originate even things like prescribed burning and even the various ways of cutting and I'm like no you all got that okay from relatives I don't know what you all were talking about so I appreciate you sharing that and so with that I know we we, we we've talked about environmental justice. We've talked about environmental movement. We've talked about civil rights. I, I, I'd like to, okay, I'd like to ask one other thing, but it's, it's a little term, you know, uh, it's a little less for, uh, uh, with you also being indigenous yourself, coming here across the country, coming here to this, to to this institution and also being moved in around the country, working with the U.S. government, and I've been on campus. How, like, how do you, like I said, it's a little different, how do you stay motivated I up to you and smile. That's what I want. Okay, how do you stay motivated, invigorated, encouraged? You know, even in in an environment that you have succeeded in, obviously. But how do you do this, week weekly, monthly, and you know, and and I I want to soon come in either renewed or at least like I am recharged to keep this going. But how do you do it? Because I know it's not easy. Uh, I know, like this person's been here. You know, you you're up against politics all the time up you know, against policies all the time so i just would love to just hear more of that human aspect of what keeps you moving and creating um you know
0: some of it might just be who i am i mean i'm not channel, so yeah you know, uh first of all i want to say that that you know um you know i'm Mexican american but, uh, by mother's side of my family's all completely indigenous trip right sure. yes. um the I don't want to get religious on you. Right. But, 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 you know, uh, I do believe that I've been lucky. I've been lucky and lucky. I've had a lot of opportunities. Uh, you know, I had Joe Sachs taking that interest in me early on and, you know, shoving me into the Academy. If I hadn't gone to study with Joe, you know, and, and Joe was the kind of person who could, when he called you, you, you pick up the phone. Right. So when he, when he was calling on my behalf, you know, so that's, that's luck. Um, you know, but I, and I'm really a pre, I've been surrounded by by uh, uh, enormously generative and and generous people most of my life, uh, um, but I also believe that you know uh, what is it to whom much is given much is asked, uh, and you know you never I, I said earlier you never do anything by yourself, right? Uh, and I think that's part of the thing that. That motivates me is is, you, you. There are people I've worked with who uh, uh, continue to work, you know, in situations that are much more difficult than what I work in, right? And continue to keep their head down, the shoulders, the, the wheel, right? Um, and so. Uh, uh, he, you know, I, I don't have it here in this office, but, you know, in that, uh, I need to put it up. I have a picture of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather uh, coming out of the mill, right? They're wearing their work clothes, right? And they're covered with, uh, you know, dust from their steel mill, right? So they were covered with stuff and dust. So. so whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, oh, God, I'm so stressed. I'm working so hard. I'd look at that picture and say, you know, that's hard work. You get to work in the shade. <laughs> right? You know, so dry your tears and get back to work. Right, right. And and they did that so I could do this, right? They did that so I could do this, right? That's one. The second thing is I've been blessed with having great students my
2: entire career,
0: right? So when I look, like, when I teach uh, federal Indian law, one of the funny things I get to do is I say you know uh, my student litigated this case right I, my, my student oh, was is the uh, attorney general for Napaho right my student like you know, and, 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 and you okay. know I had students who gone out and do done amazing things right and and it and continued so you know that's that teaching motivated I also you know uh, which students produce work for me that's good i I push them harder to make it better. So this last year, I've had eight students get their pa- papers that they wrote for me published. Mm. Oh, what? Hey, eight? Eight? Whoa! In just one year, right? Right. So you know, so you know, if you demand excellence, you get it. excuse, right? And and so so seeing that, like, actually continues to motivate me, right? Whoa! Just <laughs> more okay, right? Oh, anything, <laughs> man, I mean, oh, we realized That's you're at with that one. <laughs> and, if you th- and, you know, the, you know, the, uh, I mean, the reality is, they're, I'm surrounded by talented students, so what I'm going to do is, is make sure that that talent doesn't get uh, uh, stymied. is isn't, right, that there's avenues for that, that talent to, to blossom, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, so, you know, see that, um, and I also enjoy what I do, so, you know, but I also play music like you, so, uh-huh. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I have other other aspects
1: of my life that I get to, to to feed. Yes, sir. Wow. Well, we've asked. I've asked anything. You, me have anything. Okay. Yeah, I'm.
2: to have all of our questions answered and of them, So. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good. Good. yeah, Well, thank you. This is a,
0: This is what I I I did most of and I apologize. I was no 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 doubt. That, that's, that's what you are.
1: You. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I assume you'll edit it. Mm, yeah. Can you have it edit out my file out? Not yours. No. You were great, man. It was no this professor no thank you Uh, i didn't is there anything else that you would like to say though you know just in line with this because i know we ask questions like i didn't say this or i didn't ask this and if if that is i apologize on that part Uh, the
0: uh i think the what you know yale has to continue its its uh uh, policies to respond the the esteemed body to respond the, the the faculty i think Absolutely necessary, um, right, but they also need to f- focus on something that, that I think um, we do here, which is produce leaders, right, now, I don't mean necessarily senators and congressmen, although we produce those two, right, right, I'm talking about people who's, who who take ideas out there in the world and make them happen, right, even if, if they don't get, you know, national recognition, right, they're... They're, they're producing the work that produces change. And that's a kind of leadership that I really
2: want to help support.
0: So when I say I want to, you know, create, uh, I want to create the, the, the circumstances that students can imagine of a uh, of, uh, career in environmental justice. I'm not going to say what that career has to be. I want to say that, that they can take what they learn about environmental justice to, and apply it to the careers they choose. So that the, that the career they choose will be an environmental justice career. And then I can, you know, I say I, in my in Indian law class, I, I said, hey, you know, my, my student you know, litigated this, my student you know decided that, my, right, right, that kind of thing. I can say, well, you know, my you know my former students doing X, doing Y, right, in environmental justice. So if they if they're doing it, they start. They were sitting where you were, right? Right? They're sitting where you were, right? Yes, you can do it too. You,
2: you encourage. I'll be Yeah, know the reader, man. I'm ready. Reader, man. I'm ready, ready to do the summer
1: from this. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For all of you book lovers, book readers, there's a new text out for you Mind, Heart for Diversity, written by Dr. Thomas Rashad Eason. This book is for those who care about matters of diversity, equity, and inclusion, those who want to talk about race or gender challenges and issues going on in the world. For those who don't want to hold the book in your hand, I have a physical copy. The book is also available on Audible. So thank you for supporting the book, My Heart for Diversity, written by, once again, Dr. Thomas Rashard, Easley, founder and CEO of My Heart for Diversity Consultant LLC. Thank you. Everyone, as you can see, this is why I and we, Bennett, was so encouraged to talk to Professor Torres. Uh... You know, he's a superstar to me. I, think what I say he's a superstar to us, but you also understand why his success is tied to the people that he's connected to, loves his students, loves his work, and uh, and and he, he's just awesome. And I mean that he's humble, but I'm saying that he's awesome. Professor, thank you for your time. This has been, uh, I know, just another outstanding recording of the Hardwood Podcast. So this is Dr. Easley signing off. Been at of the Loophole signing off, and we thank you all for tuning in and uh please take what he said because it's like it, the world is yours and you take this opportunity and create and make it better for those coming with as well as after you but by always remembering those who came before you and i want to thank you for saying that because it really made me think about my grandparents who would be at the same thing so professor thank you again for your time thank you all right appreciate it yes, all right peace, peace.